What's up, my fellow fantasy nerds? Today, at long last, the wheel of time has turned, and an age has come and passed. For episode 65 of Inking Out Loud, we've finally arrived at the last episode of our review of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. For A Memory of Light Part 3, we've had a few special things planned for today, and unfortunately we weren't, of course, able to pull all of it together due to this whole worldwide pandemic being a thing. But as it is, we've still saved some of our best segment ideas for today's episode, and it's sure to be one hell of a ride. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And seeing us off on our journey to the Grey Havens, standing on what I'm sure is a tearful shore, is none other than our sound engineer, Mr. Patrick McCaffrey. Pat, what's up, dude? Buckle up, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're going to have so much fun. Drew, just do just do your Drew. Just do your thing. Tell us how the greatest fantasy epic of our time has ended. So it's it's funny because, like, synopsizing this is actually, like, super short and sweet. Yep. Um, from where we left off at the end of Chapter 37, the forces of the light rally at Marilor. The Shanchan return to the battlefield. The dragons are fixed and rejoin the fray. Uh, Magedian tries to impersonate Demandred, and it doesn't really work that well. And uh, she ends up getting collared by the Shanchan. The Horn of Valier is sounded. The heroes show up, fight for the light. Uh, at Shale Ghoul, Perrin kills Slayer and Lanfear. Rand uh, tricks Moradin. Uh, Moradin takes up Kalidor as a true power of Sa'agriel, and then has his flow stolen by Nynaeve and Warain via the Flaw, and then they link with Rand, and he uses all three powers to imprison the Dark One once again. Uh, Matt kills Padan Fane after proving immune to Mashadar, and in the end, Rand and Moradin swap bodies. Moradin dies in Rand's. Rand goes off to live a life in Moradin's. And that is the end of the Wheel of Time. That's it. That's everything. Shut up. You're crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> Manly tears were shed this day. Yeah, no, listen. But, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so while that was, you know, a little synopsis of the book, I, I want to start off with an anecdote. Oh. And and we, we originally wanted to have all of the principal... Uh, parties in this story present today but because of the pandemic we weren't able to organize it however we have two of them pat and myself <laughs> and and we want to talk a little bit about uh <sighs> the release of this book and oh. uh, pat and pat and i along with two of our friends nick and colin uh drove to provo utah back in january of 2013 to go to the midnight release party of this mm -hmm. and uh and there's quite a story attached to it, which apparently I, I found out recently ended up in the BYU newspaper. Oh, what? wait, <laughs> yeah, wait, I made the newspaper. Oh, so apparently, How they, you specifically they report, made the newspaper um, items of interest from the the campus police. <laughs> and uh, I need to read this article. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I need to read this I, article. Christ, yeah. Maybe later this year, if I'm back out there for the Rhythm of War release, I'll go to BYU and 
get a copy of the newspaper while I'm at the library to also hopefully read Dragonsteel Prime. Uh-huh. But, uh, <laughs> the, um, the gist of it was, you know, midnight release, we get the books <laughs> at midnight, and then there's a signing line. Uh, all the books were pre-signed, but if you wanted to get it personalized and ask Brandon questions, you could get in line, and, and we did that. Mm-hmm. And we waited in line for probably another hour and a half or two hours. Right, but we had the book... Yes, so... so we were reading in line, of course. Yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, we all four of us finally got our books signed, and we went outside. This was at the BYU bookstore on, on the BYU campus. And earlier that day, we had stopped by a, a liquor store, and they had a humidor, and we bought some cigars to smoke and, and celebrate. Perfectly legal. We were all of age. Nice, nice, nice. Know. And... uh it is worth mentioning at this point that Pat was there in cosplay. Yes, so if there's plenty of footage out there from like the midnight release pictures and even like plenty of video, if you notice a tallish fellow with a black coat on and a mohawk, you're looking at me. And a mohawk. Yes. Yeah. So Pat was a high blood Ashaman. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> what no, that the was hell? fantasy. Like, yeah. Yeah, I'm one of the Sean Chan High Blood who <laughs> discovered he could channel and rolls up to the Black Tower in the Fourth Age. So anyway, we're we're outside. It's like whatever, January eighth, twenty thirteen, Provo, Utah. It was freezing cold. Oh. So we were smoking our cigars outside the, the bookstore and decided, you know what, it's a little too cold to be out here. We're gonna head back to the car and we're gonna chill in the car and read and, and finish our cigars before we go back to the hotel. As you do. And Pat had Pat had split off for a little bit. I don't remember why. You you like went went for a little walk around the building <clears> or something. And uh and and then we all I think you went to go find a bathroom. Yeah, no, yeah. that's logical. I have a bladder um, the size of a gumball, so yeah. it's not that <laughs> uh, I but, feel you there. Yeah, so we we went back to the car and it was Pat's car, Colorado license plates. Mm-hmm. And we're we're sitting in the car smoking our cigars and reading. And the next thing we know, there are about eight cop cars boxing us in. Uh-oh. Oh, I knew where this was going. I knew it. Okay. <laughs> and, and of course, this is January 2013, and in Colorado, November 2012, marijuana was legalized. So these cops thought they were getting the score of their lives. It had just they, been. They just caught a bunch of Colorado idiots smoking dope in their car yeah. on BYU campus, which we were not. And they are just the kind of people who that's exactly to dope. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's exactly who and you want to be caught. You know, the up. cops roll up and they're like, you know, what are you guys you doing here? Kids. Asking us questions like, what are you smoking? We're like, oh, just some cigars. And they're like, oh, we're gonna need to see those. And yeah, yeah he like didn't at... believe us. Yeah. Like he's never and seen what? weed before oh. in his life. What if you had and smoked them all already? You had none left. How would you prove it? Just on the smell? I mean, it, they wouldn't have had any proof to arrest us anyway, well, if it was already gone. But uh, but no, we, we all had them. Uh, but the cop was like, you know, do you have anything in your car you're not supposed to? And we're like, no, no, sir. And he's like, maybe maybe something that's okay where you're from, but it's not okay here. And we're like, we know what you're getting yeah, at. Like, yeah. No, we don't have marijuana. This is like, not my third birthday, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, so you would, uh, if, if we asked to search your car, you'd that be fine sucks. with that? And we're like... Yes, we don't have marijuana, dude. Yeah. We're smoking cigars. You can see our IDs. We're all of age. Like, and 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 they're like, so what are you doing here? And we're like, oh, we're here for the book release. And he's like, you you're telling me you drove from Colorado to 
to go to a book release and we're, we're like, like hell yeah that yeah is you exactly see these crowds of people walking by all carrying the same book that we're all reading right now right. yes we came for the yeah. book release like <laughs> you think i dress like this all the time <laughs> oh damn God. but so we're like we're pretty sure that somebody must have seen pat wandering when yeah. he was going to the bathroom more like oh some somebody skulking in a trench coat oh that's and right then... <laughs> he had the mohawk too oh pat that didn't do you any favors man yeah, no, that is the wrong place in the world to go if you want understanding and acceptance of maybe an, an alternative lifestyle. Right. Oh, my goodness. Literally on the BYU campus. Right. Is there like a worse somehow, place to be caught with marijuana besides maybe the White House? Keep the windows yeah. down. No, the White House is legal in D.C., what am I saying? Freezing. Yeah, yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> and this was like 45 minutes of harassment. Oh, yeah, yeah. While, we're, while we just want to read. And I was, like, at, at a certain point, I was like, I've had enough of this. And I just, like, relit my cigar and, <laughs> and went back to reading while they were dealing with the cops. <laughs> oh, that's a ballsy move there, my <laughs> yeah, friend. Yeah, no, you, Colin, and Nick. See, I couldn't like, do that. Yeah, that's, this, is your, this is on you, Pat. <laughs> I, as a professed pot smoker, who would not ever bring anything or smoke anything down there, I could not do that. I wouldn't have even been able to do what you did there drew and keep smoking a cigar i'd be a foreigner i'd be in a lot of danger i'd be like uh-uh <laughs> not me I, drew lights up that cigar i'm walking away from it damn oh, that's no. ballsy that's we there was there was absolutely though. nothing that we did wrong but it, but it was just a series of hilarious coincidences mm -hmm. damn and uh, and yeah and i just found out recently that 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 was in the byu newspaper. oh how did how was I, that I, I had phrase two that... different people two different friends who went to BYU corroborate and be like, "Oh, I remember that." Like, <laughs> so what, what did the mean, paper say? Some some shaved head, trench coat, pot smicking, smicking hippie, smoking hippie. I, I don't know. I I really want to see what Damn. the article says. I'm really curious. Hippie? No, no one could ever. No, not hippie. No, no, no but it was the, the pot smoking. That. Yeah, it was the pot smoking the that I figured. Who, I'm the guy who chainsaws the trees that the hippies are tied to. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was like, uh, it, I'm guessing, you know, somebody was like, you know, call of suspicious person on mm -hmm. campus, um, you know, officers briefly detained suspect due to suspicion of, Brief, of right. drug <laughs> use, uh, no arrests were made or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that, so, like I said, unfortunately, we don't have the whole group, but uh, at least Pat and I, you know, are on to... <laughs> right we're here <laughs> yeah to Fine. reminisce a little bit seven wow. seven years ago oh that must have been a fun man. oh that would be scary still to a great night oh yeah it was it was absolutely incredible that that release party was a heck of a lot of fun and yeah i'm i'm looking forward to yeah, you know. hopefully you know the rhythm of war party will will you know release will go ahead as planned in november and i'll be able to go out for you know, to see the what what kind of a monster that has evolved into because yeah. I was at the Starsight party this past November and that was bigger than the Memory of Light party. Really? And they're expecting the Rhythm of War release to be twice the size of the Starsight release. They're expecting like over 5,000 people to show up to that thing. Damn. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess the Oathbringer one was over 3,000, and just based on, like, how the release parties... Like, the Starsight party was as big as the Oathbringer party. It sold out the venue, and they have to get a bigger venue for Rhythm of War. Like... <laughs> it's not the book that sold it out. It was Brandon Sanderson at that point. Like, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah. no, I would say unbelievable, but no, that's absolutely and totally believable. 
surprising, <laughs> but believable. So, anyway, shall we shall we charge forth into our style discussion? I don't have a lot of style to discuss, but I have some few things. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so as what I'm sure <laughs> is no surprise to anybody at this point, Brandon, in my opinion, had some of the greatest pros of his entire career in the, you know, the final third of this book. Um, yeah. I don't have a ton to say about his style because we've said so much already up until now, comparing and contrasting him with Jordan himself. But I want to say, first off, chapter 39, Those Who Fight. I believe that one's called Those Who Fight, yeah. This one moved me in a lot of ways. Like, we have not just beauty, we have majesty in both imagery and in word choice. We have Rand walked through eons and ages, his hands passing through ribbons of the pattern's light. These scenes... In the Dark One's prison must have, to me, must have been, you know, interesting and challenging for anybody to approach. But Sanderson went and nailed it. It's a shame that we didn't get to see this particular scene from Jordan's own pen. I'm sure everybody agrees with that. Right, yeah. Um, although, you know but, what? But you're right. He he nailed it. And and there is, there is one specific passage that is famous now from this chapter. Oh? Uh, where, where Rand says, it has never been about me. And it says, it was about a woman torn and beaten down, cast from her throne and made a puppet. It was about a man that love repeatedly forsook. It was about a woman with a secret, a hope for the, you know. And it, yeah. it has this litany. And I think one of the best moves the Wad on Prime TV show ever did was using these quotes when announcing the principal characters, uh, the, the casting for the principal characters. They used these you know, exact quotes. I'm just finding this out now. Yeah. No wonder um, they rank familiar. You know, when, when they had the Eggween casting That's announcement. Right. On the tweet, there oh, was a okay. quote. It was about a woman who would not bend her back while she was beaten and who shone with the light for all who watched. You know, like, it, and when they announced Benave, it was about a woman who refused to believe that she could not help, could not heal those who had been harmed. And for Matt, it was a, about a hero who insisted with every breath that he was anything but a hero. Like, this is so good. Yeah. It, like, and it really speaks to how good it is that it makes me feel something for the first time about characters that I've never given a crap about yeah. up yeah. to this point. And, yeah. and like, more gays. More like, gays was right. an odd one. Like, yeah, I wasn't expecting... Is it about more gays, really? Like, and, I was, and Tom. I was caught up in it. You know, and, like... Yeah, more I welcome gays. Tom. Tom yeah, was... And, like, yeah. Wayne. Yeah, like, it, so it starts, it goes more gays <laughs> than Tom, than Warren, than mm -hmm. Perrin... Then Nynaeve, then Matt, then Egwin, and then it was about uh, them all. Parents got me too. A man who stood tall in his sorrow and protected those he could. Oh, it's just like, oh mm -hmm. my god. That hit home. That brought me right back to the Shadow Rising Part 2 or Part 3 when I was just uh, hurt for parents so bad. You know? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I'll say this. This is a scene that somebody with the talent of Brandon Sanderson was born to write. He was born to write those pages. It's, I, like... I can't imagine how it would have been different with from Jordan's own pen. Um, and I, in fact, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of half expecting for you to correct me, Drew, and say, well, actually, no, Jordan wrote this one too because I've been hearing that about so many scenes that I've been unprepared to hear that about. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> but uh, uh, I believe this is Brandon Sanderson. Oh, yeah, it's, it's I, got I his never heard anything everywhere. Uh, as, as far as I know, um, all of this stuff at the end of the book but before the epilogue was... Brandon. Yeah. Now, so. on, on the subject of, of typical Sanderson fashion, though, something that just screams Brandon Sanderson, 
um, for me, while we're still in our you know style discussion point here, we we gained a lot more momentum after we hit, in my opinion, one particular line. And for me, that was the line where Rand finally lets go of the list. He mm-hmm. is screaming and he's being flayed by the Dark One. And in that scream, he lets go. And to me, it gives the impression of like cresting, obviously, as the metaphor has been put forth by Randall Thor before this with the last battle as a whole. It felt like cresting the top of a very steep hill. And the first step, you go down the other side is slow. And the second step comes faster. And then our Sanderson avalanche is off. It's made... All the more exciting, of course, with the context in mind of every single reader at this point. And, you know, that is, this is the end. Forward for the light. It, it all starts here. And I, it's mm-hmm. goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yeah. One, one thing that has, you know, stood out to me on this read-through um, that, that feels very Sanderson, and it's something we've talked about on previous episodes, but on an even more micro scale now, is, is the staccato lines and sentences line breaks how as as the events of this book ramped up and we had this insane chapter everything from the end of the last battle chapter 37 to the end of this book is short fast it's it's no longer this exhausting uh you know marathon of a you know, a, a, of a reading experience. Mm-hmm. These chapters, some of these chapters are a page, two pages long. And within the chapters, the sentences are short. They're, yeah. The the paragraphs are short. Paragraphs, at a certain point, rarely end up uh, longer than a couple of lines or a couple mm-hmm. of sentences. You know, it's it's very, like, choppy. But because of that, it, it moves fast and there's this frenetic feeling to it that helps drive that momentum that as if the whole last battle was this buildup of pressure and then land killing demand red releases that pressure mm. and then this is the rush after it yeah and, this is the flood that follows yes. from a chapter structure down to a sentence structure point everything about the writing in what we read for today helps uh, you know, intimate that that rush, that forceful release that we're getting after the last battle. Hmm. Yeah, and things are wrapping up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a very cinematic experience. Absolutely. And then on Randall all the Thor. different fronts, the good guys are in dire straits, and then the one thing in this case, land killing Demandred. Hmm. Like, everything starts to turn around. Mm-hmm. You know, they get the horn and everything. And, like, like yep. they start to win. Yeah. yeah. That's the turning point. Yep. And, and on a lighter on a lighter note of style, there's one particular mat line. And we've had, uh, we've had our criticisms about Sanderson's mat humor before. But better late than never. Because if this line was written by Sanderson, he, he finally got it. It's, like, oh. very close to the end. I'm paraphrasing, but as Matt thinks about the heroes of the horn and like someone was berating him, uh, and he goes, Even dead women bullied him like that. <laughs> like, yes, like that. That's it. That's Matt. That's Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good on him there. I, I definitely, that definitely stood out to me. I noticed it in that moment and just the same way you did. I laughed out loud and I was like, Yes, that's what I've been waiting to hear 
right there. So it's well done. It makes me think it was written by Jordan, but you know, uh, never so, know. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that was Sanderson. Uh, as far as I know, the only Matt in this book that Robert Jordan wrote was the one little bit in the epilogue, and that was not in the epilogue. The the scene mm-hmm. you're talking about. That makes sense. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah no. but but I I very much agree that that is the mat that we know and love from Robert Jordan's books where it's he has this um, sarcastically put upon mentality, you know mm-hmm. where where like he there's a there's a little bit of an awareness of like of course I'm I'm getting berated, but there's also like a, a you know poking fun at himself yeah a self deprecating humor to it where he's like uh of course <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah naturally what else would happen under these circumstances mm-hmm. <laughs> so so well that wraps up everything i had to say about style and i will like is there anything else that you guys have to say about style before we go into characters yes there is oh, okay sorry go ahead man and this is not about brandon sanderson's style this is robert jordan's style ah okay and this is okay it has become a trendy thing in a lot of discussion circles to kind of dump on Robert Jordan's prose. Oh, he's too detailed. Oh, he he doesn't have he doesn't have the lyricism. He doesn't have the, the poetic <sighs> kind of trendy. Prose, you know? Yeah, I hate that it is, but and and maybe there's a little bit of justification in that. You know, I'm never I'm not gonna claim he's Guy Gabriel K or Gene Wolfe or Kaya Shante Wilson or someone like that, but when he put his mind to it. Robert Jordan can move a reader. Mm-hmm. We talked about it back in the Shadow Rising. We talked about it in the Path of Daggers with Fedwin Moore and with Jonan Adley, and and some of those scenes with uh, uh, Eben Hopwell at the end of Winter's Heart. You know, like he he has the ability to move a reader. And the very end of this book is simple in execution, but gorgeous mm. the final the final two paragraphs yes the wind blew southward through knotted forests over shimmering plains and toward lands unexplored this wind it was not the ending there are no endings and never will be endings to the turning of the wheel of time but it was an ending yeah another Master. moment another moment that i predicted correctly and perfectly i need to brag about that real quick before we continue no big deal or anything but in the days or maybe it was weeks before release i don't know if you remember drew but i posted i made a post in the large facebook wheel of time group i predicted that the last words of a memory of light were going to be there are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time but it was an ending i mean probably not Mm -hmm. too hard to guess in retrospect but yeah. in the moment, I still felt pretty good about myself when I came but, to that line. How, I was like, Ugh. how perfect is it? it was, yes, yeah, it, it was bookends the way to so end perfect. That book. There was no other way you could end yeah. the series. Absolutely. Like, it's. I, I still think The End of Soldiers Live by Glenn Cook is the most perfect ending to a series I've ever read. Mm. But this is not far behind. These, these final lines. Are, it's are like just there there literally is no better way it could have been concluded it's and they lived happily ever after of the wheel of time 
but but it's it's so much more than that too. Yeah. You know, like because it's not just and they lived happily ever after because right. you know they didn't just live happily ever after. Right. Right. And and I think maybe this is a, a good transition point. We we solicited some listener questions. Really, I saved those for them. the end. But oh, if you have one well, to answer, have at it. Yeah, man. just because this is a good segue. Um, the way it ended. There's a lot of controversy in the fandom where people are saying, I wanted more. I wanted to find out what's happening after. Uh, right. uh, I wanted a 19 years later type chapter. Oh, come on. You know. Don't bring Rowling into this. You got that in Towers at Midnight. Hey. Oh, oh sh- <laughs> I hope we didn't. Um, Everybody like, well, well, hopes we didn't. It was conclusively proven that her, yeah. her visions are not going to come to pass. Because, because of Ruark, right? Yeah, because of Ruark. Yeah, my dude. And well, and she's my dude. I actually have him called my but... dude in my notes later here too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. R.I.P. Buddy. Uh, Best yeah. I uh, But Best I, I never personally felt the need for that. Yeah, it would have been cool to get the Outrigger trilogy with Matt and Tuan. Um, but was that an honest uh, plan? Did Jordan actually still insist that he was going to write those eventually? Or is that yeah, still oh, something yeah. that he was just like vaguely thinking about and letting people know that he was that he was considering? He was no, he he was going to write it. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, he had two things planned to write. Um, uh, he he had the the prequels, uh, the Tam prequel, and then the second Moiraine and oh, Land I prequel. Love that. And Tam then prequel. the Outriggers with Matt and Tuan and Min uh, reconsolidating Shan Chan. Um, although he hadn't started working much on it there's as far as i know uh he left behind just like a few lines that he had started writing of matt like dicing in an alley in ebudar um and and that was just the start of it perfect but sound like a perfect start yeah. to a robert jordan book mm-hmm. um and then he was also going to write a new series called infinity of heaven uh, i love the idea yeah, like- of that as much as I understand the desire to want more, I don't want more from this book. <laughs> like, it, it, it ended where it needed to end, and if it dragged on more, that just would have been gratuitous. I agree. I, I think had there been, had this epilogue been like, you know, whatever, chapter 50? Yeah. And there was a, a 19 years later style epilogue after it, that would have undercut the power of the closing lines, mm-hmm. for one thing. And I and I also feel like it would have undermined the the themes that he built up throughout fourteen books in the series. It it, it is such a a constant in the wheel of time that you're never going to get all the answers. And wrapping it up in a bow would have felt disingenuous to the previous 4.2 million words, mm-hmm. I think. What, uh, well, sorry, yeah. remind me again which exact question we're answering right now? Or was this just, uh, like, uh, was it... There was... I don't remember the... Because I have all the questions comments. here. This is one of the ones that was posted on the Inking Out Loud Facebook uh, engagement group. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, so that was, was from... one question about... Yeah, that was from Kyle um, Pollock. And he said, thoughts on fan wishes for continuing stories, i.e. Matt and the Sean Chan, what would you guys have liked to see? That's the question we're addressing, yeah? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So, so like, yeah, it would have been fun to see the Matt and Sean Chan stories 
yes, but I don't think we need them. I, I, I'm not put out. I don't think we're robbed of a proper ending or anything because mm. we didn't get it. Uh, See? I mean... No, I answer uh, this... Sorry, go ahead. If, if it's a more general question about... Like, if there were more books that took place after the fact, what would I most like to see? The Matt and Nebudar stuff would be cool. Um, Avienda learning how to time travel would be really cool. <laughs> oh, <laughs> god damn. <laughs> um, as far as anything, like, the, a Black Tower, White Tower relations book would be cool. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, the only, that's the only thing on Randland. You see... I answered this question very differently because I didn't write um, anything about what I wanted or what I hoped Jordan actually did get around to. I just wrote Mm -hmm. a a couple of things that I I really wish had ended differently. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm still going to complain that Matt ended up with Fortuona and not with Tuon. I didn't like her before the name change, but I didn't actively hate her. I, I wanted to see Matt ride off. See, this is what I want. I wanted to see Matt ride off with his hat and his horse. Into the sunset, a couple of pretty girls on his lap, laughing at him, playing with his staff, that kind of thing. Or maybe him riding off with a Ludra. If you had asked me in, like, Circa Winter's Heart, when that was the new one, I, I feel, it, feel, it would feel really weird by now, but during Winter's Heart, I really shipped those two, something fierce, you know. I still, I'm still so, indignant on the behalf of a Ludra. I will say, on the, like, theory part of that question, I, I feel very strongly that I know at least the thrust of what would have happened in the Outriggers with Man and Tuon. Oh. Um, playing with his staff thrusts. Like, come on, guys. What are we talking about? We doing? <laughs> that it... So it was going to be a trilogy of Outriggers. It was going to be three okay. books. Okay. So obviously it's not going to be tied up nice and neatly, you know, snip snap. But I, I feel very certain Min was going to end up being a major character and ending up uh, playing a part in Tuon's court in Shanshan. Mm-hmm. Okay, I feel enough. fairly certain that Magedian would have been the principal antagonist of it, that she would have gotten out of oh. her bondage quickly. Uh, there were so many little pieces set up to bring existing main or major characters to Shanshan after the last battle that I, I just cannot help but think Robert Jordan planned to include them all in the Outrigger trilogy. That's interesting. Um, I keep forgetting that Rand was Rand still involved. Have, you know, Rand would have maybe showed up from time to time to, to visit Min, mm-hmm. uh, but that he would largely have not been a player. Uh, I think Matt retains his Taviran nature, uh, but he's the only one of the three who does. So that you can't just be like, oh, yeah, let's let's bring Perrin and Rand over. And, and Hold on, Matt retains his Taviran nature? Yeah. Do we get that? Because he's got text? more stuff to do. Yeah. He's got more stuff to do. Wow, I thought I thought all three of them were no longer Taviran. No, so it's, it's learning never that explicitly <laughs> said that Matt is not. Uh, yeah, yeah, never... is not, and yeah, yeah. Karen is not. But yeah. Matt is is left up in the air, and I think that's again on that's purpose. Point. It's one of these seeds that ah, Robert Jordan planted right. to set up his his Outrigger trilogy. We couldn't really have Gosh. a series of Matt if he wasn't Taviran. It'd yeah, be very I mean, difficult. It, yeah, it would. It would feel. It wouldn't feel like the same Matt. And I mean, I mean, but and it's not Robert Jordan's style to write the type of story where it's like he had this Taviran power 
and now he lost it, and he has to make do without it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I could see Brandon Sanderson doing something like that. Oh, yeah. Sanderson would, would have a field oh, day sure. with that. That's some narrative ground upon which to sow some right. seeds. Right. Yeah. But. I want to hearken back to one aspect of this book and get your guys' opinion on it. Because okay. I don't know if I'm, like, being too picky or whatever. But the whole concept of the last battle upon reflection doesn't sit well with me given what the dark one's actual motivation is as it turns out like so if he he wants to break the wheel essentially mm -hmm. and cause a bunch of nothingness right that's why moradin is his most loyal follower his only loyal follower if that's the idea what on earth does it matter what happens to the like why bother with armies why bother with it why not just say okay demandred get that song real start sweeping around you with balefire or moradin because moradin would actually do it and then the pattern is just well i don't so, think his his uh, his goal was to, more was that. to wreck the pattern his goal his goal was to crush the hopes of men that was ultimately that. his goal more so than the nothingness right yeah rand comes to this realization um that that it's it's more than just nothingness that it's actually he wants to break humanity and and the biggest part of that is that he needs to break rand and uh so yeah he he because during their conversation mm. the dark one promises rand rest and he promises him oblivion and rand comes to the realization yeah and he says, you really are nothing. You would never have given me rest as you promised, Father of Lies. You would have enslaved me as you would have enslaved the others. You cannot give oblivion. Rest is not yours, only torment. The Dark One wouldn't have... Yeah, that was a lie. ...gone to nothingness as... Huh. And this is, this is, I think, the great twist with Moradin's uh, ideals is that Morden Shamael was in the end wrong. He would he would never have achieved oblivion, mm -hmm. and so uh, the only the only hope for peace is what he was what he got is is that um, you know he can die and be reborn and hope and choose for a different life, mm -hmm. um, and and so because of that the uh, because the dark one needs to break Rand in order to truly break out and enslave and torment the world, mm -hmm. he needs Rand to see uh, the, the failings of what Rand um, perceived as his responsibility. And it's, it's that moment that Rob brought up in Rand's you know, like shriek of torment where he um, abdicates his responsibility for everybody else. And, and he says, like, you know, is it me dodging my own responsibility or is it me allowing others to carry their own responsibility? Mm -hmm. And, and it's at that point that the dark one essentially lost, uh, yeah, that's, because, okay. because yeah, okay. he can no that's, longer, that's a much better interpretation. And it like, it yeah. brings it more into line with something like the Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. which also makes sense because Sauron's goal is also just to enslave the world. Yeah, yeah, I honestly, between all of the different realities that Rand and the Dark One were kind of throwing at each other, if the Dark One yeah. were to achieve his perfect goal, I believe that first reality would have been yeah. what the Dark yeah. One wanted. Mm -hmm. Which Ultimately is just, what he would have done. It's, 
stylistically, it's strange to me, like the way, it, the way it was revealed, the way it was played like out. Surreal in like the the scene but, itself. You mean? Yeah, and like. Or do you just mean the as way the author's the choice was revealed? I suppose. <clears throat> okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was I a bit of a. Why, I don't know what the point was, but I mean, like we probably all would have assumed from the get go that that's what the Dark One's goal really was. And then this Oblivion concept gets introduced only to be like, no, that's not it. Like, okay, I, was, I like it. Why did we need to go through that? What did I mean, we... I guess because it made you worried for a second. It made you worried that you had totally mis misunderstood everything and that there was a big unknown player. No, it didn't know. make me... It made because me worry that. in Eye of the World, we have these talks of breaking the wheel and slaying the Great Serpent. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there is at least an implication there that that will just cause oblivion and end time. Right. Sure. And so I, I think it's more of like, uh, instead of like twist after twist, it's from the get-go supposed to be at least a question. Is it this yeah. or that? And then we have the cracks themselves spreading, you know, absorbing all the light. So you have all these different pieces of the board coming together, and it looks mm -hmm. like they're going to spell something horrible that you hadn't even prepared for that's that's one thing is that over the course of the past 14 books obviously no none of us are actually thinking okay it's going to end horribly the dark one's going to win and we will all serve him after all but introducing that new threat one that we hadn't had 14 books to brace ourselves for i think it was very very quaint like it, it, the whole idea of the nothingness showing up at the last moment and that's exactly what moradin slash ishamayel was 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 hoping for and and seeing all these cracks spread all over the world and seeing people freak out even the forsaken start to be hesitant about it i mean i mm -hmm. thought it was really effective and i i personally enjoyed it i thought it was a really cool little bit of flavor there apocalyptic flavor if you will okay. well while we're on the topic of things that you know maybe we're going to criticize a little more <laughs> okay uh, I, I i kind of mm, alluded to this on our last episode but I, I held we... off from really diving in because it's all um, the real issues that I have with it happen in this portion, and and it's it's a book long theme. It starts with Talmanis in the prologue, where he is he reaches this um, breaking moment as a character where he, where you know he becomes the dread bane where he he can defeat Murdral because he doesn't have to worry about taking wounds because he is already dead. And then he is saved at the last moment and healed by Nynaeve. And then, during the battle, uh, during the last battle, Galad faces off against Demandred and is defeated and left for dead. And then he's saved at the last moment and healed. And then Lan reaches this, again, cathartic, or not even cathartic, like, like an apotheosis moment almost, where he, he, he comes full circle to his teachings with Rand, back in the great hunt about sheathing the sword and he says mm -hmm. you know sometimes sacrificing yourself is what you need to do to win and he and he does that he lets himself be run through so he can kill demandred and then he's saved at the last moment and healed and then yeah. fayil sacrifices herself so that ulver can get the horn away oh. and then she's saved at the last moment mm -hmm. and healed and it's like it, it happens over and over and over again and if it happened once maybe twice I wouldn't have a problem with it. But yeah. because okay. it happens again and again and again and again, it feels like a deus ex machina okay. at that point, where it's but, just like, oh, we didn't want these characters to die, so we're gonna, like, we're gonna 
There were the make you think they died, and then but the one that really pisses me off is Lan because yeah. the fact that he's saved completely undercuts the whole thematic power of him choosing to sheathe the sword. Does it? Because he was ready to die, and I thought he did. This is something I said in the last episode that Drew, you were very hesitant on letting me say fully because yeah, that last word he sent his at the end of chapter thirty-seven, the last battle he sent to his his love to Nynaeve as he did. He did. He collapsed, but. I thought, for some reason, I was so ready for him to die that I read, yes. died. D-I-E-D. I was like, mm -hmm. so when he was suddenly alive later, I, I was like, hang on a second, what the hell just happened? And then I went yeah. back and read it, and then, oh my god, he didn't actually, he didn't say died, it said did. Oh my god. Yeah. It's a dumb yeah, moment so to like have. That's, that's definitely um, one of my biggest issues with See, this book. Is, I'll is this. Yeah, it's a big problem. Hold on, um, I'll challenge that, though. I'll challenge that, though, before we continue. Because, unless, were you going to elaborate on that still? Or were you going to change the subject? Yeah, I, I'm elaborating on that still. Okay, and, sorry, and go I on. Know, I'm going to say I know that, in large part, this is a Brandon Sanderson decision, not a Robert Jordan decision. Uh, because the Talmanis stuff was written by Brandon. And uh, the, um, uh, the only stuff in the epilogue that Robert Jordan did not write were the Perrin, Loyal, and Cad Zwain scenes. And the Perrin scenes are where he saves Fayil. Yeah. This was well, Brandon. And hell, now that you mention Cad Zwain, it's kind of the opposite thing. He made us think Cad Zwain was dead for a split second. Oh, well, I mean, I, then... I, don't have a, I don't have an issue with that scene with Tom. Yeah, it was just... I do oh. remember when Tom just, like, casually kills Cad Zwain. I was like, what? Wait, yeah, like, I do remember being on. surprised there. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, like, I, I, I went back and reread a couple paragraphs. So like, did I miss something here? What yeah, the heck? I and did I also on, that oh. same reread. Now, like psychologically, <laughs> I don't know what it says that I wish more people had really died. Yeah. But, like I don't know. Just be consistent with it. Oh, wait until we get like, later. Episode. Like if yeah. every like if everyone lived or if everyone died or whatever, the people we thought were dead were actually dead. Mm -hmm. The people we thought were alive are actually alive. That's fine. But why some authors insist on doing this, pulling the rug out from under us, nonsense, is beyond me. Like, it does nothing for me. Does it do anything for you guys? No. Okay, can I, like, can I retort now? It was cool when Tom Onis did... Okay, yeah, go ahead, Rob. I'm going to challenge that, in, in that you have to consider the feasibility of letting characters die of their wounds when you have a magic system that is so capable of healing everybody and has been displayed healing everybody. And you have players walking around like Nynaeve, like Yukiri, like the like the male Ashamon, uh, Damer Flynn. He was a the really talented healer, right? I mean, how practical, practically speaking, how, how would it have been to, to witness all these characters dying and for so some reason not having an Aes Sedai around to offer some sort of healing. You'd have to pull a lot of strings to get those exact events to line up. It sounds like a lot of work. Except the events were already lined up. Galad and Lan, especially, they died, yeah. like, deep behind enemy lines. Yeah. They yeah. were lying there on the ground bleeding yeah. out for a while before there was any help that got there. And with Lan specifically, he's healed by Jaharna Rishma, who is yep. never, never established to be a good healer before this. Mm-hmm. It felt, it definitely felt heavy-handed, but I didn't and, find and Fail pissed me off even more because that was like, like super, yeah, like oh, that 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 was such a last moment thing. Like, it, it felt out of place in the epilogue, where the epilogue where it was the series of very short little vignettes, and then we have like a five-page long Perrin scene where he rescues Fail. And finds yeah. her like 
somehow barely still alive after three days buried under a pile of trollocs. Three days? In the middle. Well, I don't know if it was three days, but it was a, <coughs> it was a while, because they were at Marilor, not at Shale Ghoul. Yeah, but parent you know, trying to move world faster out there. Oh, got you. Okay, got um, you. Yep, you mean talk, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like, it's... That one was like, there's no way she's still alive. Like, there's no way. I will, and, I will join your voice in that complaint there. In that it was yeah. done, it was it was pulled out from under us so late that in the penultimate Perrin chapter, I thought we had lost her, and I was like, "Wow, that's a mm-hmm. really dark way to end Perrin's chapters." Is to, to have him collapse crying yeah. over Fael. I was like, "Damn, okay, they really are making this this so late. They are really making that impact." Okay, and then in the epilogue, it was in the epilogue, it was mm-hmm. corrected. It's I was like, what? It's it's a little cheating. yeah. You want to get the emotional impact without any of the consequences. Yeah. And, like, that's what separates, like, certain kinds of authors. Yeah, and like, and like I said, I mean, I'm getting worked up about this. This is, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty minor complaint that I have. Mm. I think, overall, <clears throat> this book was executed very, very well. And I'm more than satisfied with how The Wheel of Time was concluded you know, through the work of Brandon and, and Harriet and Team Jordan with Alan and Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was overall very good, but there there were missteps along the way, I think. The only true condemnation I have of Team Jordan is, is Pod and Fane. That's the only true one I have. And we'll get to that later. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> do we, do we, before we continue, though, because I, I, I've been wondering this for about 20 or 30 minutes now. Do we not have any character discussion to have? Because I believe it or not, we're still waiting to reveal that I have nothing about any specific character to say. So I I don't really because so much of this was around like just plot points being resolved rather yes. than like character development. The only real like character development that there was in this segment was Perrin letting go in the same way Rand let go. You know like yeah. where Perrin's like I I can't hold back anymore and that allows him to finally get the upper hand on slayer and kill him so but, we, we can safely say is like you know we're probably not going to have our, our typical episode episode discussion today of rand <laughs> yeah. and then perrin and then elaine and avienda yeah. lay and naive yeah. okay cool cool all right uh anywhere else you want to go in particular anything else you want to discuss about style perhaps or anything miscellaneous should we start answering some fan questions what do you want to do boys i think uh i think we got to go into fan questions here okay yeah, okay well i have them all right here. Our fan, the the fans have been with us up to this point, and now let them be heard. Yes, <laughs> yes, they will have their questions answered about an hour into the episode, ah, fifty minutes, give or take, maybe forty-five. It was a pretty late start today. Okay, so <clears throat> um, let's see here. Uh, oh, fan questions. Oops, I'm looking at the wrong part of the page here. Okay, so our first question came from Simon Flesher, and he asked, "How does it affect you this time around? It being this ending." Does it still affect you the same way it did the first time, or does this ending feel completely different? And I'll answer first. I said, to me, it honestly feels mostly the same. Uh, I've read and reread these books so many times that my opinions are pretty worn in by now and hard to change. I definitely have a greater appreciation, though, for the literary quality of certain aspects, I suppose. And it's hard not to when you're talking in-depth for so many hours with somebody like Drew McCaffrey, of all people. (laughs) So that's how I answered that one. Okay. Um, for me, it doesn't feel the same. Like, the emotions around reading something like that for the first time are too vivid. And 
it's a mistake in my opinion to continue reading something in the hopes that you'll force out that same emotional reaction even though the times are different. However, I get something different out of it each time. And it and that something is reflective of where I'm at in my life at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look for different things. Every time I do read it, it's it's satisfying in a different way. Okay. Drew, how'd you feel so about it this for time? Me, um, I, I have a very different reaction to finishing this book, you know, just, you know, yesterday than I did, uh, the day it came out when we hunkered down in our hotel rooms oh. and read in, in Provo. Uh, I, I vividly remember finishing that book and closing it and expecting tears of some kind, expecting, you know, a wave of emotion to hit me and it didn't happen. It was more of this just completely hollow, almost disbelief that it was over. Catatonia. In a, in a weird uh, way. For I me... I don't know if I'd say catatonia, more like shock. Um, for, yeah. I have a video of my first time finishing the book. Actually, I don't think I've ever shown you that video, Drew. No, I don't think so either. Um, but yeah, so but with this time, there was more emotion for me. Um, like I said, I've only... This is the third time I've read a memory of light i i read it the day it came out i reread it again a couple of months later and then i haven't touched the wheel of time really touched it since uh until we started reading for this and uh and so while i had kind of you know the academic knowledge of what happened in the epilogue and 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 how plot lines were concluded um it, it, know, it's hard to describe like there was a different emotional response to it where the that just like overwhelming feeling of like holy crap what a masterpiece we just finished you know like it's it, it was you know there were tears in my eyes when i read those final lines this time when i read but it was an ending you know and and reading and that that epigraph wow. by loyal from oh. the dragon reborn Oh. And it, so I'm glad we did this because in a lot of ways, like, yeah, I, I don't obsessively reread the wheel of time the way I did when I was younger. Uh, but it's good to remind myself of why I love this series so much, because it's not like I'm totally disconnected from the wheel of time. I'm still very active in, in the communities and I'm still a moderator for the big facebook group i go to jordan con you know like all all the stuff where i'm still talking and thinking about the wheel of time even though i hadn't read the books for seven years Mm -hmm. and and so reading them again had more of an impact than i expected because it's easy for me to think oh i'm constantly thinking and talking about the wheel of time it's the same old same old and but it's nice to be reminded like yeah it's the same old same old but it's been so long you you may forget why you love it so much that you're willing to have it in your life on a literal daily basis so yeah, yeah. i just i just remembered the perfect example of something that i didn't appreciate before but I have an appreciation for now because of a conversation on air with drew mccaffrey and that was the 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 parallel uh the symbolism 
that is that is personified in Min, Avienda, and Elaine in the Triple Goddess in that whole yes. literary thing, that literary trope. I had never been aware of something like that before, and it was endlessly fascinating for me afterward to do a lot more research on it and see, holy crap, he wasn't kidding. That was amazing. I, I, I do, like, like I said, I have a literary appreciation for it now that I didn't have before, specifically because it was Drew, I think, that I that was reading it with. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Also, uh, Simon, the same questioner, wanted us to discuss the various levels of blade master that approach demon dread but <laughs> as we said in the post uh you can check out our previous episode on the last battle for our opinions on that yeah yeah so thanks for the question simon um are we ready to move on yes sweet so the next question we've already answered that's from kyle pollock he was the one that wanted to know about uh expanding stories um the next one after him was rashid karugli common questioner what's up Rashid thanks for coming back who is your favorite forsaken and why he has two questions that's the first one who's your favorite forsaken and why and what locations towns excluded did you find the most intriguing where characters really didn't necessarily spend much time there so hmm. I'll answer I'll answer first my favorite forsaken demon dread he is just so damn powerful he's focused He's, he's capable, very clearly capable, and apparently has an entire continent with prophecies about him. I didn't expect him to make the amount of trouble for the light that he did. And so I found him to be the most interesting, have the most dimension. And plus, it was really fun to hunt for him all of these years. That hunt itself was fun. Um, as far as places go, I mentioned on the podcast once, long, long ago, that I would definitely want to visit the Anseline Gardens. Um, for those who might not remember, since they were pretty they were a pretty obscure reference in one of our Forsaken socials way, way in the past, the Anseline Gardens were a high class. Was it Knife of Dreams just then? I it thought was. it was like Shadow Rising. Oh my god. Uh, it, was, it was Knife of Dreams. It was the Aron Gar point of view at the beginning of Knife of Dreams. So the Anseline Gardens were a high class restaurant slash gambling den in the Age of Legends with... Only the finest goods and wines and patrons. You know, gar I, I picture it just gardens and sculptures and fountains everywhere. Uh, Graindal and Balthamel apparently were, were both frequenting the Anseline Gardens quite often. And both of them are forsaken who are known for their physical appetites. So it just, it sounds like a great weekend there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like or, Age of Legends Las Vegas, basically. Yeah, it sounds like a great weekend or three. That's how, that's yeah. how I wrote down. What about you guys? Favorite forsaken? And were there any places that you want more info on? Um, Moradin has always been my favorite for Philosophically speaking? Um, no, not even that. Just really? like he I always he seemed like he was really mysterious. He was, as Moradin, he seemed more competent. Like as a Shawmail, he was kind <clears throat> of a bumbling idiot. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, can't argue that. I don't know. He has a good sense of style. Yeah, you like the red and black. Yeah. You just inspired <laughs> like, me. Something like the way going. he does things, you know. He thinks more clearly mm -hmm. and strategically, but isn't shy of using force when necessary. Um, and as far as places, um, I want to know more about the Island of Mad Men. Oh, yes. Yeah. I didn't consider that's, that. That's totally what the last couple sentences are referring to. Like, unexplored lands. Like, oh, yeah. You Australia. don't go to Australia. Yes. 
Oh, right away Freaking we arrived. Where the Trollocs are made up of all the hideous insects. Like, you've got a snake, spider, crocodile Trolloc. <laughs> oh! Right? Like, a spider Trolloc would be horrifying. That body, would be, oh my god. We just imagine the body of a spider with the torso of a crocodile and arms that are snakes. <laughs> and they have hands on the ends of them. No, no. Like, actual snake mouths. Not hands. Snake mouths. Oh! Who oh. needs thumbs when you have yeah. fangs? Right. <laughs> The spider part's still the creepiest part of the <laughs> I'm not even particularly arachnophobic, dude. I don't mind spiders. I, don't, I really don't care about spiders. I, like, they don't bother me too much. But a Trolloc spider, I would be... Thing? Yeah. Oh yeah. my <laughs> god, I would be so fast in the opposite direction. Ugh. Oh man. Yeah. Anyway. Terrifying. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. But yeah, I think for me, my favorite Forsaken is likely also Moradin. Uh, for many of the same reasons Pat said, uh, I I liked his unique um, perspective and and reasoning uh, that that he had a a fascinating motivation and and it made sense to me that we would have somebody like this who, for you know. To, to be blunt, is so far up his own ass about philosophy <laughs> that he just decides the world needs to end. Yeah. Like, because, uh, I, I mean, I've met some people over the years, especially in college, Nihilist. who got Perhaps. pretty far up their own asses about philosophy and, and came to conclusions that were very dangerous. Of course, they would never act on them because they were not, Same. like, yeah. They would but, say that they're but, good people, but they're really obedient cowards. Yeah, like, it, it's... It, so it made sense to me that if you have an all-powerful, insane person who was this type of completely overboard academic, that you could end up with Ishamael. You could end up with Morden. Like Pat said, though, it is very specifically Morden, not Ishamael, because the Ishamael we see is in, like, late-stage true power addiction, where, like, he's completely insane, and yeah. his body's <clears throat> literally being burned from the inside out, and, and he's, like, about to die. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, so. you guys just... And, and bringing up Morden versus Ishamael and their relative levels of sanity, you guys just inspired me on another answer that I'm going to have about a different question that we're, you know, going to answer very soon, actually. Yeah. Uh, but you but guys just as for the lands, like the locations, uh, I oh. always wished we had seen something happen in the drowned lands. The the kind of the northern, northwestern border of Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Just the, the brief mention they have of it, it, it sounds like a fun like adventure story location where you know it's swamps and they have giant snakes and and all kinds of crazy animals yes louisiana basically i uh, see i thought it was, <laughs> I was gonna say the amazon was like um yeah the amazon or or like uh southeastern okay. asia something okay. like that where um because there aren't native monster snakes in louisiana oh, they're sure. native snakes but but there aren't like Monster uh, snakes, reticulated pythons, or anacondas, or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, <laughs> but it, it it reminded me like of the anaconda movies, you know, like that kind of a location where yeah. it, it would have been fun to have uh, some sort of, of an adventure, like on a boat, 
where where they were going to Mayin for some reason to help Barrelane out and, and Barrelane and Galat. And then, and, yeah, yeah. And, then, and then Jennifer Lopez and Ice Cube show up. John Voight. Yeah, John Voight was in that movie. I forgot about that. Yeah, he was the bad That's guy. Right. That's right. Oh. Um, <laughs> of all the things we were going to talk about today, I did not expect Anaconda yeah, to be one. Of them. Anaconda. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, so what other uh, listener questions do we have? All right. <clears throat> Let me see here. We have one from Mark Geller. Actually, he has, Mark has two. Uh, and we actually have two Marks asking questions as well, so there's going to be another Mark after that. Mark Geller asks, so, and I know you're going to have fun with this one, Drew, what is your favorite book in the series after all? And he very, very carefully phrased it, you only get one. So we have to make a decision. Each of us three has to make a concrete decision on our favorite. I'm going to go with our favorite, not what we think is the best written, but your personal favorite Wheel of Time book. You get one. Do you guys need a minute to, to think? Should I answer first? Uh, you can go first. Yeah, okay. I figured I'd go first. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was a I will say what I was choosing. It was a tough choice between Lord of Chaos and Towers of Midnight. I was originally considering Lord of Chaos because of its length, its complexity, its pacing for Jordan Standard. Probably the most emblematic Wheel of Time book, in my opinion. But my heart lies with Sanderson and Towers of Midnight. My final answer is definitively Book 13. Just for the sheer amount of oh my god moments in there. And plus, Matt rescuing my bay. Warren, big <laughs> okay. thing for me. So, Towers of Midnight's my answer. That's my favorite Wheel of Time book, number 13. Fair enough. Um, Crossroads of Twilight, final answer. What? Uh, <laughs> you almost had me there. Troll you, you, you said that with such a straight face, Pat. You actually had me thinking you were serious for about 1.8 seconds there. <laughs> no, I mean the full Crossroads of Twilight. That is Crossroads of Twilight and Knife of Dreams. Mm. <laughs> okay okay fair enough so knife of dreams in other words yeah <laughs> like if I, if that wasn't i'll give clear. you that i'll give you that okay so, pat says knife uh, of dreams so yeah i i believe i addressed this uh earlier in our episodes um <laughs> you did but you kept changing your answer long time um i would have said the shadow rising uh but after rereading knife of dreams i i think my opinion has shifted and i also say knife of dreams so to answer simon flesher's yeah. question earlier about how does it affect you this time around compared to the first time that might have yeah, been an answer for him there too you drew true. mccaffrey has changed his favorite book from the shadow rising to knife of dreams yep awesome sweet uh going on we all answered that one right yeah we did okay um mark geller still mark geller also asks Min, oh, this is such a great lore question. I know you're going to have fun with this, Drew. Min once had a viewing about Cad Swain saying she needed to teach them something. Rand and mm -hmm. all the Ashaman. What was that thing? I have an answer, but I'm going to let you jump at it first. Uh, so this is a matter of some debate. Uh, there is, is not a definitive answer to this. As far as I know, maybe there's something in the notes that I haven't seen or heard about. But... I always thought that it was that they are human beings, that they are not just weapons. They need to remember to laugh and cry. And that it was, it's easy to get caught up in the Rand aspect of it, but that it was something all the Ashaman needed to learn. And, uh, and eventually they did. And it was a big part of why Logan had such a powerful uh, conclusion to his arc. Where it I love was, it. It was the choice of 
helping others and being a human rather than going for the Sa'angreal and being the weapon. Yeah, so you in literally... what way does Cadswain influence Loghain's decision? Uh, indirectly. Because it's through Rand. Through Rand, she, yep. So the, the viewing itself, if I remember right, the, the wording is she's going to teach you something. Not you and just all you, the Ashaman. but all of them. Yeah, yeah but that all was the, the phrasing, you and all the Ashaman. Yeah, and and so it's through Rand where he he provides the example um, after Dragonmount, <clears throat> and when he tries to engage directly, uh, you know, in in the last battle, and comes to the decision, no, like I am not just a weapon. This is not my place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's it ties back to the founding of the Ashaman, where the the name Ashaman means guardian, not weapon. Yeah. And while Rand, in his insanity, said create weapons, the original thought behind it was to create guardians. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Rand was very careful to mention that not just anybody who protects anything can call themselves an Ashaman. To be an Ashaman, you have to have a true and just cause to stand up for yeah. it. It's something that's very, very different. It's, oh, I shouldn't say very different, but it's very distinct. Yeah. Um, Drew, you took pretty much my exact answer. And I'm glad you did, because that means I was right. In my head <laughs> canon. Well, well I, that's I'll, just I'll, my interpretation. But. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> guess what? That thing was laughter and tears. I'm pretty sure. I'll, I will say this. Yeah. I'm just agreeing with Drew. I'm not asserting this as a fact. Mm. Rand was leading himself, and by extension, the Ashaman, are down a very dark and bloody road to ruination with their attitude about having to be hard, having to be inhumanly so. It was Cadswain who conspired with Soralea to teach him laughter and tears, him being the dragon reborn, and then this in turn saved the Ashaman when Rand sent them his final message. I want to say it was via Narishma? Was it Narishma he sent with his final message to the the Black Tower? Saying, I was wrong, we are not weapons, we are men. And then I wrote down, I'm so glad you brought this up, True, This might also have been a big influence on Loghain's decision to sacrifice Sakarnan to save the lives of ordinary mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So okay. I think... I'm going to have to disagree with you guys on this one. Really? Okay, let's oh, hear it. What do you think it was? First of all, I like the idea more that it's something that she's going to teach them after the fact. And it simply hasn't happened yet. Which is perfectly plausible because yeah. Cadswain is the Omerlin is in a position to do just that. Um, Further, I I have... like I know Cadswain and Soralia set out to teach Rand laughter and tears, but she only succeeded in an indirect fashion. She succeeded by accident. She was the catalyst of events that led to Rand realizing. Like, it was more of an internal thing than her teaching him something through her own actions. Like it's, it, it, I find the connection to be a little too indirect for my for my taste. So the only issue I really have with that is that if it is something she teaches them, like the Black Tower after the last battle, mm-hmm. it has to be something she already taught Rand before the last battle because it's something she's specifically teaching Rand and the Ashaman. Right. So like maybe maybe it is, you know in his plan in the outriggers there was going to be something about the black tower having problems and Cadswain needing to you know um yeah get them back on the right track to the whole laughter and tears thing but i think at a certain point it has to be something like that or because otherwise it's impossible for her to like 
teach Rand and the Ashaman the same right. thing. Or it's Sudoku. Like, we, we really don't know exactly what it is, but both Rand and the Ashaman are still alive at the end of the book, so you're absolutely right. It could have been something uh-huh. planned for the Outrigger novels. I don't and like Kaz that. Wayne, and Cad's Wayne knows. Yeah, I don't like she that interpretation. Something. I like, hate that interpretation, I but I can't argue it. Like, that's an interesting question. Like, at the end of it all, mm-hmm. at the funeral or whatever, Cad's Wayne clearly is like, I'm not buying this. <laughs> this is nonsense. So How did you she feel? No, but she knows. Before we continue um, with our questioners. Oh, sorry, Drew, were you going to jump on that? Uh, so I just want to say, like, point out with the Cadsway and epilogue scene. Uh, I loved it. There is... There's some possibility of disconnect there. So that was a scene Brandon wrote. Um, Therese and a few people on Brandon's blog back in 2013 actually asked about that scene. And uh, and Peter said Team Jordan gave them permission uh, to say that Brandon himself wrote the words of that little scene. He said he's being closed-mouthed about what specifically came from the notes. But in general, Robert Jordan left quite a few notes on where people ended up at the end of the book. Um, and so... This person asked, am I right to assume that her implied fate wouldn't have been put in if the notes say something different, assuming there were notes on it? And Peter just said the notes about fates at the end were not contradicted. So there's some some wiggle room there that okay. maybe um, it wasn't Robert Jordan's plan for Cadswain to end up as Amerlin. Uh, personally, I think it, it probably was. Yeah, uh, just from lack of a better so, you know contender. Do we have anybody who would have been better for the job? Yeah. Well, when it, Moiraine, I guess. Naive, maybe. I thought. But I don't think she's a yeah. leader, though. Nynaeve, Moraine. Nynaeve would just laugh at the, at the suggestion. She would not want it. Make Swan the Armorlin again? Well, if she wasn't dead. Plus, with yeah. Nynaeve, that would yeah. take her away from Malkir. She wouldn't, she wouldn't yeah. go for that. Well, so, and this is why, like, one of my kind of issues with the end of the book, where I was like, if Lan died, Nynaeve can just become the Amorlin. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, I get why Lan wasn't killed. Because we wanted to have the happy ending for mm-hmm. them. I just, I'm, And I'm fine with him being alive. We don't need to reopen yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, we don't. Know, but... we, we beat that pretty senseless. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, let's move on with the listener questions. I know we have a few more. Oh, yeah, we definitely do. Is that, um, is that my sister? It is. Aha, uh-huh. well, let's 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 give them a McCaffrey a right of way here and uh, see what <laughs> Anna has to ask. <gasps> Anna's in? On the Facebook group. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because I already, so I already have asks... her asking a question here. She's uh, she's second yeah. from next. Do you want to address hers first? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Or do you mean she added something yeah, new Pat. just now? No, Pat was just saying to, to railroad her to the front of the line. <laughs> oh yeah, let's let's okay, let's do that then. Um, so yeah, Anna McCaffrey Wheeler, who's been a guest of ours before, check out Cross of the Twilight. Some excellent theorizing there. She asks, "Are Rand and Egwene as the dragon in the flame a yin yang dynamic? Does Rand have a healthy relationship with his three ladies? Do you see any of them lasting?" Have at her, man. So for the first question, <laughs> uh, the the yin and yang dynamic yep. there. 
I I think there's a hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? There's like a temptation to say yes, they are just because of all the symbolism around the white tower and the black tower and the convenient as you said the dragon's fang the flint of tarpaulon and all this but when you dig into their characters um there are some ways in which i think you can say that they have very different approaches to power uh rand does not want power he he tries to run away from it at first and he only reluctantly accepts power uh he kind of hates the way he has to use power Whereas Egwene basically embraces power at every turn and constantly seeks out more power. So there's a, a parallel, uh, you know, and contrast there that you can make an argument for. Um, I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that really stands out to me as like a, a balance or contrast um, in their in their characters. Well, and not... Like, uh, uh, some comparisons that you could make fade away after Rand has his moment on Dragon Mount. Mm-hmm. Like, he was more chaotic before that, but then afterward he becomes serene. You know, he, he ascends, right? yeah. and then he becomes more, yeah, like Rob said, serene is a good word for it. Um, and Egwene is always exactly the same. You know, she doesn't have a moment yeah. where she, you know, pulls herself up out of a out of a bad situation mm-hmm. like that so uh, you could only make an argument from it i, I would the say there was storm. one possible yeah the gathering storm there's one possible moment in with sylviana that could be argued as that moment well mm-hmm. and, and as rand chills out Egwene becomes the Amarlin. yeah yeah so she's only the flame after rand is also more like the flame Right, right. And I, I also brought that up in our Towers of Midnight discussion uh, at the time, too. Um, I'm going to, while Drew, you continue to chew on that, because you, you, you left off a little uh, uncertain like you were going to continue. I'm just going to say my answer, and maybe it'll jog something loose for you. Okay. Um, I don't feel particularly qualified to answer this question to start off with, both as a single guy, you know, talking about, actually, I was going to address also the, uh, the ladies as well. I'll leave that part out for now. But on the subject of Rand and Egwene, I have always thought so. Um, that they, they, they do kind of represent a yin-yang dynamic, but I don't think the metaphor quite works. I don't see Egwene thematically as an opposite of the dragon, so much as I see her mirroring Latra Pose Decum's position against Lucetheran in the War of the Shadow. I think that's ultimately what she represents in, in, in Rand's life, in, in the dragon's life, and as what struggle he needs to overcome and what right he needs to, what wrong he needs to right. Um... So I, I, I would just say not quite if it was if you were to ask me, I would say she's more of just like a she's just another opportunity for the dragon to to correct his mistakes. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, a good argument to be made that yes, that symbolism exists and, and you can draw those parallels. Um I but I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that's like their purpose is to be this balance to each other. Uh because ultimately the white tower is much less than we are given to you know understand it at the beginning of the series mm. that Egwene is the leader of just one of the factions she's not like a true balance for the dragon reborn you don't think so or did no. i misunderstand I, it I oh wow so. well i don't think she was a balance for the dragon reborn but she's as good as humanity could do the I attempt think. 
at Marilor felt very shoehorned into me, especially with some of the things like I'm the watcher of the seals. And right, like that. right, oh, right. nonsense. Like it just. So maybe there was an attempt, but it just felt forced and fell flat. Could be. Could be. Could be. And that's interesting to consider. Um, are we. Uh, oh, so, we should also address the, the second part of a question the ladies. Yeah. Yes. Does Rand um, have a healthy relationship with these three ladies, and do you see any of them lasting? Just for those who forget the question, because I forget all the time. So, I I really don't know if any of the three relationships are particularly healthy during the events of the series. Um, I think there's just, like, so much else going on that mm-hmm. he can't properly spend the time. None of them can properly spend the time to develop a healthy relationship it's certainly not healthy with avienda where rand is constantly running away from her i don't think it's healthy with min where she is constantly like um kind of running roughshod over him and forcing him to do things that she wants and he doesn't uh taking her with him into danger things like that um and i i there's no real relationship to speak of between Rand and, and Elaine for most of the series because they just yeah. rarely see each other. However, I do think all three of them have enough of a foundation in their relationships with Rand that going forward after the last battle, they could develop into healthy relationships now that, you know, the world isn't about to end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't... Well, I, I only really see it with um, Elaine. Like I, I just realized if... we mm-hmm. didn't I, we didn't get an answer from Pat on the uh, the yin yang thing, did we? Did I skip I over was you there? Into that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we did. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Been just, hitting yeah. the pipe a little too hard there. Right? Yeah, a little bit. Well, actually, <laughs> I haven't yet, but I'm considering it. Maybe I'm going to put it off a little longer now. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um... Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, so his relationship with Avienda, there's a lot of attraction there, to be sure. Um, I don't know that they have anything that could provide a solid basis for a relationship. Unless you consider... They could raise children together and do that well. And so there's some potential there. I don't think it exists right now. Min, her purpose is over. Like, she was kind of a counter to his darker moments. And then now that that's not necessary anymore, like, they would have no idea where to pick up the the, the fragments of their relationship. This is so different. Now. Yeah, that's part of why I always envisioned Min going to Shan Chan in The Outriggers, and that Rand would maybe visit her from time to time, but she wouldn't be, like, a principal partner for him the way she was for most of the series. Um because for better or for worse until a memory of light min didn't serve any purpose as a character except in direct relation to rand like everything she was was to serve the betterment of rand she didn't have any agency of her own and so now that she has the potential for that agency to you know like be the doomseer for shan chan for the empress of shan chan and and like uh, through her viewings and in and her influence in the court, work to better the society of Shanchan. Uh, I, I think she's a more compelling character away from Rand, and that maybe Rand could like you know go visit from time to time, 
uh, because there's there still is that like that comfort zone that Rand clearly developed with Min mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that I'm sure he would like to to keep intact. Sure, um, she's the most homey of yeah. the of the three of them. She's the most domestic, and uh, and while Rand, yeah, he wants to go out and 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 explore the world and do all this part of that attractiveness to it for him is that he can explore the world while not having to deal with palaces and lords and ladies and politics Mm -hmm. and all of that he can deal with people in a more genuine uh person to person manner which is how his relationship was always set up with men yeah yeah um as for this part of the question i had two different answers i i i answered who I'd pick, and I answered who I think Rand would work the best with. Um, if if I was Rand, I would personally choose Elaine. I mean, yeah, she's gorgeous, but I'm sure the other two are as well. But with Elaine, there is this greater sense of mischief and fun that seems like it would stick around well into senior years. Growing old with Elaine sounds like it'd be pretty fun. Uh, plus, her being a queen is a big plus. I mean, can't, can't deny that. Um... But as far as Rand's comfort level, you brought up a very, very good point there, Drew. In in Winter's Heart, specifically, in Far Matting, there were a few scenes that they legitimately read like husband and wife in, in a few ways. Yeah. Um, there, were, there was clearly a lot more comfort between Rand and Min than we have seen between Rand and Avienda or Rand and Elaine. So, Rand, like, for Rand, I would say Min, but if I was in his position, I'd say Elaine. <laughs> Sorry, I know, Drew, you're an Avienda fan. But, I mean, I like Elaine, too. Uh, yeah. I, I've been on the record as saying I love the Rand and Elaine chapters at the beginning of The Shadow Rising, and right. I love a Lily in Winter uh, mm-hmm. in Winter's Heart. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not offended by that at all. I think uh, I think they would talking continue to, to be fun if about they had the, the proper time to build a relationship uh, beyond just making out was... in shadowed corners of the Stone of Tears. Yeah, Hard Heads the was House that. Of <laughs> hard heads was After, that chapter like, you're talking about each right other for a year and a half yeah, yeah really enough talk you will bed me now oh wait that was avienda <laughs> ah, they have wow. had something from you that i have not <laughs> yeah really and that is the d all right oh. avienda clearly had the well, d before yeah, yeah she definitely had well, i don't know if she did she was the first she was the first yeah well, oh, Rand lost his virginity. Yeah, uh, I, I thought you were saying she had slept with other guys before Rand. Oh, no, 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 no. no yeah. Well, she well, she I, makes I, mention I, that she has... I don't, hasn't she mentioned that she has? When when Rand was, like, indignant over the... Like, no, not over her having seen other men, but when she was referring afterward to Elaine and how he was still Elaine's, and Rand is like, what, you and I just... what? Uh-huh. And then you know, Avienda goes, well, you're not the first man I've known. Does that bother you? I think she says something like that. I don't know uh, if she actually slept I with other men. I do not no. remember that. No? I, no? That, that's a different character. No, I do not. I, you might I, be getting your wires crossed with the 98% sure Avienda said that to him in the far snows. At least, not that she slept with other men, but he's not no, the first man she was into. That, did not say that during the far snows. No mm. way. If you, if you know what I'm talking about, if you're a fan and I happen to not be speaking completely out of my ass, let me know where she said this because i could swear to god i remember avienda saying not confirming that she has been with other men but rand isn't her first like love perhaps or maybe her first significant kind of thing and then she what she asked him specifically does that does that bother or maybe it was something that rand considered maybe it was just inside rand's head 
I don't know. Something's telling me that there is a specific moment like this. But I can't, for the life of me, point out exactly what it was. So if you know what I'm talking about, answer it for us. Let's move on with uh, listener questions. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. sure. Yeah. Before we go too far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, so to to back up a little bit, because uh, Anna uh, asked after Mark Warren. So Mark Warren is our next questioner here. He asks, what seems to have changed conceptually over the series? For example, Moiraine's power in book one, or the identity of, you know, Demon Dread, etc., etc. What did he substantially alter or refine as this series went on? Well, the Aes Sedai, for sure. So, uh, so that's an interesting question, because you can take it a couple of different ways. Like, as, as Pat said, the Aes Sedai, as a concept... I don't know if it's necessarily that Robert Jordan changed his mind and thus refined them as the series went on in the same sense that he did with things like how the world of dreams works and dream shards in Eye of the World versus the end of the series or changing his mind on Tiny Mandred. Um, I think he always planned to slowly strip away the veil of mysterious uh all-powerful Tarvalon. um i think that was always in the cards mm-hmm. but it was something that in concept did change across the series so i guess it, it it's kind of depends on how you want to interpret the question um okay i i i think in in the latter interpretation there it's one of the best things about the Wheel of Time is how good Robert Jordan was at establishing expectations in certain ways and then in a natural and seemingly inevitable way subvert those expectations the more you learn. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons the world building is so powerful, it's so deep, is that he doesn't spend um, just a casual moment to describe something and then leaves it at that. There's always a constant dynamic of knowledge and understanding to the characters. So uh, I, I like that example of, of the Aes Sedai uh, and Tarvalon, you know, as an institution going from this you know, inscrutable, omnipotent, <laughs> you know, group mm-hmm where as long as they're with one eyes Sedai, they're safe, where there's this sense of, of just pure yeah. confidence they got this. in the eyes Sedai from the start. And then by the end of the series, like there's almost contempt for the eyes Sedai. Yeah. Like, almost. Oh, there's the outright contempt here. halfway through That'll the series. <laughs> you know, well, yeah. and this, this uh, applies to a great many things conceptually. Mm-hmm. Uh, male channelers, the Forsaken, um, like there is Shadow Spawn. Shadow Spawn. Yeah. Like for the first several books, we're shrouded in mysteries, as even as we're learning about the world, and then slowly over time they get brought into re- the realistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Huh. I can't. Well- think of anything else off the top of my head that but, would apply. Well, so as to the as to the, the former option the former interpretation where it's mm-hmm. like things that Robert Jordan established early on and then changed his mind or on or tweaked or refined over the course of the series mm-hmm. um, 
the world of dreams is probably the biggest that I can think of. The way, um, the way characters interact with dreams and the effect that dreams have on uh, the world. Mm -hmm. There's also very definitely a, a refinement to traveling. Um, he wrote it in such a manner in the eye of the world that he, you can fit it in to what became established canon where uh -huh. it's like, Oh yeah, that's just a true power gateway that Ishmael wove in the, in the, uh, Dragon Mount prologue and, and Rand traveling at Tarwin's gap and, and at the eye, like, Oh, he just didn't describe the gateway. Um, it, it doesn't directly contradict anything later on, so mm -hmm. you can you can fit it in. But there's definitely a change and a refinement to how uh, gateways work, how traveling mm. works, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I took this a little more literally. I said, for my answer, I said, I don't think... Because he, he mentioned Moiraine's uh, relative strength in the One Power as well, like Moiraine's power in uh -huh. Book 1. I wrote down, I don't think Moiraine's strength really changed too much, not counting for her soul-draining in Sindal. We always, like, that has a clear I explanation. <clears throat> um, she was always lauded, along with Swan Sanche, Elida Do Avenria Royhan, Cadswain uh, Maladrin? What is her last name? Maladrin, right? Yeah, Cadswain Maladrin. yeah. Um, these, and Moiraine and Damadrin. Were, were always the, considered the most powerful Aes Sedai currently in the tower as we met them. Um, and when we met Moiraine, she had an Angriel. So I don't think her level of strength, like in terms of her, her base capability, changed very much until Jordan, or maybe it was Sanderson, I, I, I can almost guarantee it was Jordan, decided to nerf her in the hands of the Aelfin Eelfin. Yeah. By the way, Drew, question. Which one is it? Again, I keep her forgetting. The Aelfin or the Eelfin that actually drained her of the power, of her ability in the power? The Aelfin, right? Oh, I I think it was both. Um, really, I thought she it was went just... through the Aelfin's gateway with Lanfear. Right, but one of them specifically specifically has that um, <clears throat> has that that longing for draining another human being and experiencing their emotions and stuff like that. That was the the Aelfin, right? Wasn't that, that was perhaps? Both. Oh, it could be both. I, again, once again, was... Rob could be speaking out of his ass. Um, I hate. That Jordan changed the identity of Taim, or Demon Dread, yeah. Taim, Demon Dread. Uh, it feels like a cheap, uh oh, they're on to me kind of move that he just kind of retconned later. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose it is also worth noting that Jordan increased Fael's original age, as we mentioned in the Shadow Rising, yes. because of what I, I guess I'll call a bit of fan atmosphere over Fael being, what, 15, 16 at the time when she got married she to Rand? Or Perrin. 15. And 16. Perrin was 19. Yeah. Oh, it's just 16 and 19? That's not too 15. bad. <laughs> 15. Oh, originally it was... Okay, I thought originally it was 16 and then change he 17. changed her to be like 17, 18. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, Mark also, also had a second question. Uh, he asked, what was signaled very early on that brilliantly unfolded through the very end? I'll answer first. Ooh. There are so many answers to this. Yeah, I know. I, I, I came up with one that I just learned today. Just today okay, I learned it. All, I just watched it. I just realized it. Um, Swan Sanche and her story to Matt about her uncle and how her uncle died. That is exactly mm -hmm. how Swan Sanche died. Yep. Running into a burning building to save someone else. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And it was 
to Matt that she told that story to, and it was him that she was running into the building to save. So yep. I love how that, that came out. I just made that connection today when I was doing my notes, and I was I had a, another chill right there on the spot. I was like, oh, oh, my God. But when you're talking about an author like Robert Jordan, who was so, so famous for his proclivity for foreshadowing and, and, for, and for planning in the future and world building, it's just there's so many examples you can bring. So I want to hear what you guys think. So my favorite, easily my favorite, foreshadowed event uh, is the Sama Nisei, the Red Veils. What? Oh, that, okay. Yeah. That we had this idea given to us all the way back in the Shadow Rising of Aiel male channelers going into the Blight to die fighting the Dark One in air quotes and that uh, there was a story you know that came out because some maidens you know would sometimes go with them to hunt Trollocs and uh, Shail Tigrain died you know because she uh, you know ran into Isan basically um or, or no, uh, really? excuse me, I, I'm, I'm mixing that up. Um, it, it was uh, Janduin. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, died. wait a second. Yeah, he he went, uh, I mean, the Maidens did go up sometimes because they, that was when they got the story of the Eye of the World. Yeah. Um, they ran into the Tinkers. Uh, no, but it was Janduin died because after Tigraine, you know, uh, died in childbirth, he like, you know, lost the world to live and all this. And he went up with the, the Channelers to fight in the Blight. And he ran into Luke, and he said she that he looked like Shail, and he wouldn't raise his spear to defend himself. Yeah. And, so my question, so, though, is how does that tie to the Samba and Sai? Because all the pieces for the town and the channelers getting turned to the shadow, all of it is laid out in book four. I'm still and then confused. we finally see them show up at the end of Towers of Midnight. How does Janduin running into Isam have anything to do with the Red Veiled Aiel or the town? I'm still lost. Because Isam was raised because in the Isam town. Because Isam was raised in the town, and he so, and Janduin went up with all the guys who were getting turned. Right. So it had to be at the town this happened? It couldn't just be like a random Trolloc raid or whatnot? Somewhere in the Blight? Well, it happened in the Blight. We know right. it happened the in Blight's the Blight. Right, the Blight's a huge place, man. It doesn't have to be in the town. I'm not saying that... Okay, you're you're like completely misunderstanding what I'm saying. I, I have to, yeah, I must be. I'm not saying be. that it took place in the town. I'm saying that all the pieces, all the foreshadowing for what is happening with the the Aiel Channelers getting turned and the existence of the town and and Isam being involved in this like whole thing going on in the Blight were all laid on the table in the Shadow Rising, and then we never engage with it again for seven, eight, nine books, mm -hmm. and then bam. A sledgehammer of a reveal in in the epilogue of Towers of Midnight. Mm. I loved it. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. To it me, was a it, big question. It always felt like something that maybe, like I know that Jordan had had he had to come up with some world building reason um, for the Aiel to to uh, to to banish their male you know channelers in that you know heading into the into the blight to spit in the dark one's eye was a really badass and very ideal way to go but to me this whole time i'd always been considering the sama and sai and the red veils as 
perhaps a Brandon Sanderson idea saying, what if we dove into that trove and we created some characters No, it was not a Brandon Sanderson idea. Robert Jordan wrote the town scene in... Oh, that's right. Yes, he, I, 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 I had just learned that he wrote the town scene previously. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can't... Obviously, I can't argue against it. I can't, like, prove that wrong. It's just to, that was not anywhere close to my head canon. That's interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do we all get a chance to, to answer that? What was signaled very early on that was brilliantly unfolded through the very end? Um, all of Min's viewings in Barillon. Right, yeah. Like, re- like, give me chills every time. Like, and we spent hours and hours talking about all the viewings and hypothesizing about what they could mean. So I'm going to go with those for my... Uh, for my favorite bits that un- that unfolded later. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Like, okay. as much as Min sucks, her viewings were really fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, are we going on with more questions? Sure. Okay. All right. So this next one comes from Mary Saucier Rayotin, uh, the wife of C. Rayotin, or Cy Rayotin. I apologize once again if I'm getting your name wrong. Um but Mary Saucer Rayotin asks, this question is about the madness. And this, by the way, after reading this question, is something I really wish we had a chance to discover with Anna um, during mm. the Cross of the Twilight episode. But Mary asks, Nynaeve sees the madness in Rand's mind. Does it stay with him when he takes over Morden's body? Is the taint connected to the physical body or the soul? And, furthermore, would a man tainted that same way also be tainted in the world of dreams. Oh man, that is Ooh, that's a complex question. Um my immediate, you know, instinct is to say that I don't think it carries over with Rand into Morden's body. Uh, I do think it's attached to the soul or, or it's attached to the body, um especially because it has physical effects on male channelers i talk about how in advanced stages of you know the taint that their bodies begin to rot and things like that um but if it is attached to the soul i'm not sure it really matters if it traveled with Rand to morden's body or not because it didn't matter after Rand's apotheosis anyway uh that in all effect the madness was gone at that point um all all it did from that point forward was continue to allow him access to uh his soul's memories to loose theron's memories um i don't know well maybe as i as i talk through that a little more maybe i say it does it does need to carry over I guess we don't really know. We don't have enough time with Rand at the end of it in Warden's body to know whether or not he retains Luce Theron's memories. So it could be... It could be either way. But my my gut is that like he's not in any danger of the madness, so to speak. That, that only... Um, if there are any effects of it that linger in crossover, it's just allowing him to access those soul memories, and uh, and and there are no ill effects. 
Okay. But that's um, me, like, completely, you know, off the cuff. Yeah. I, have, I haven't ever looked into this. It's, this is a really, uh, really fun kind of avenue of theorizing that I hadn't considered before. Yeah. Um, I'll say, uh, my thoughts at least, are that the taint is not connected to the soul, but it is connected to the body. And I wrote, we know that the connection to the Dark One is what buffers someone against the taint. But it's still a physical weave on a physical brain. As we saw, as, as Mary mentioned, Nynaeve sees this weave on Rand's brain when she delves him in Towers of Midnight. And, as you just mentioned, Drew, does it really matter at that point after Rand has his apotheosis and she also mm -hmm. can see the, the glowing happening underneath all of the thorns? I suppose it depends on how much you want to intermingle the brain and the soul as concepts or how they work in the universe of the Wheel of Time. Myself, I don't see Rand's physical brain also moving into Moradin's physical body alongside his soul. I'm pretty sure it was myself, just a soul yeah. transfer, not a literal brain transfer. So my thoughts are that, no, Rand's madness didn't make the transition with him. But it's fun to consider when realizing that this would in turn make Moradin insane. Or, you know... More, well, I mean, more or less so. insane. Right. Yeah. Um, and I do believe that somebody tainted so would still be tainted in Teleron Riyadh. You need a physical body to be there. They are pretty, you know, yeah. inextricably linked there. Also, and just before we wrap up my answer on this one, this is the question that you guys inspired me earlier on when you were talking about Ishamael versus Morden and their relative sanities. Ishamael uh -huh. was absolutely insane. Morden was not. So I think yep. I'm going to use that for why. I think it's a physical body thing more than is a soul thing yeah i i agree with that thought process awesome cool uh any thoughts pat or uh have we beat that one into the ground no everything everything you were saying makes plenty of sense to me I okay don't know cool, that cool. I have that much to add we uh, we have one final fan question and that was yes. from christian hayden and he wants to know I'd like a deep dive from your perspective on Fane and the power he found. To me, this is one of the greatest mysteries of the books and one of the least understood. So my answer, just off again, off the cuff, I'll admit to a lot of curiosity myself. Uh, the ending of A Memory of Light implies that the Dark One himself is just the essence of evil that is necessary for everyone to have the concept of free will. But, if that's the case... What is the evil of Shadar Logoth slash Eridhal slash Mordeth slash Shaisam? What is that? Evil squared? I'm also kind of confused. So, let's hear it. What do you guys think? Well, it's time to get into uh, deep, penetrating lore with Drew. <laughs> Ooh. So, we actually have some answers. We actually have some answers. Oh? Uh, some years back, Matt Hatch, uh, he's the founder of Theoryland. He's uh, uh, probably more well-known nowadays as the host of The Dusty Wheel on YouTube. Uh, he is probably Matt uh, Hatch. The, the foremost metaphysics theorizer I've ever met in the Wheel of Time community. He, mm -hmm. uh, some, like I said, some years back, he drove Mr. Sanderson to the airport. You can look up this interview on Theoryland. It's called Driving Mr. Sanderson, Matt Hatch. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so he had Brandon as like a, a hostage, basically, for, for an hour or so in the car. And, and took the opportunity to ask him some questions. And he asked him quite a bit about Pat and Fane. And uh, 
there there's some there's some really great quotes and i'm just gonna read some of these out good okay good i haven't so, heard any of these mad hatch says you mentioned that mordeth was a man who <clears throat> had quote power you were reported as saying that his power was that which he got by seeking out all of the evil things that weren't related to the shadow and brandon said he was seeking things that were related to the shadow i think that might be a misquote he was looking into the power of the shadow in order to defeat it that was his goal he was looking into everything he was looking into things that were not necessarily related to the dark one as well he was looking for everything he could get so he wanted to defeat the dark one and he felt that he could find other ways to do it he originally was good he was not this terrible person to begin with but he was looking to defeat the dark one to find a way to defeat the shadow and he looked into a lot of things he shouldn't have looked into there are evils that are not necessarily directly related to the Dark One, though everything evil kind of has a connection, just as there are goods that are not necessarily related to the One Power. We're talking much as Perrin running with the wolves. This is a thing older than that. There are other things, other evils, old in a similar way. And he goes on to say a little later, Is Mordeth's power, this evil power, comparable to the One Power and the True Power? Is it a power that can be woven? And he said, no, it's more along the lines of Perrin's wolf power, something more natural. And he said, it's, an, it's more of a natural but unnatural power. So essentially, uh, as, okay. as, the, as the, the interview goes on, there are many magics in the world not related directly to the Dark One or the One Power. We see some of them. We see, as he said, as Brandon said, the wolf brothers, uh, sniffers like Hurin, doomsayers like Min. The, the Aelfin and the Aelfin in Sindhal, these are these natural powers that are not directly related to the one power or the true power. And the power of Shadow Logoth is one of those. And so uh, it, it's something that it, it just is. It exists. It's not something that gets destroyed. As we saw, like, you know, it, it, it ate at... Uh, the taint and it, it was like a mutual destruction with the taint but it wasn't gone from the world it still remained in Mordeth and uh, this is one of the reasons that I personally do not have an issue with how Padden Fane died here because this is not the end of the power of Shadar Logoth the the Fane points of view that we get at the end of this book, he's thinking about how he wants to find somewhere to seep his power into the ground. And he found that. When Matt killed him, his body, like, melts into the ground. Okay. The power of Shadar Logoth remains. Do we know but that, though? Because it said something place... about the power dying, too. The power died with him. It says that specifically. The power died with him. It, I think it says no. that specifically. It, 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 the power did not die with Fane. The power melted into the ground. So there is this natural, unnatural power, as many other magics are, still in the world, just sitting there waiting for somebody to discover it. This is, so like, while in, in the coming ages, we have, um, you know, a potential for world peace and things like that, and in the next turning of the wheel, they will likely forget about war. But we have another option, along with boring into the dark one's prison in the next turning where you could discover this power instead mm -hmm. to reintroduce war and strife to the world yeah um and i am also uh along the lines of uh this theory a big fan of it that fane was going to the pattern was moving him uh to shadar logoth so that 
if Rand killed the Dark One, Fane would then have attacked Rand, and Rand would have had to seal Fane away. And over time, over the turnings of the wheel, people would forget about the Dark One, because they're like, oh, the Dark One's dead, the dragon killed him. And then, the next turning, they bore into it and find this power instead. Which has been fermenting and bubbling away yeah. for thousands I'm of just, years. I'm so confused. I could have sworn it specifically said the power of Mashadar died with Fane. Okay, so and I'm trying off, to look up the actual Matt Cawthon's point of view. Yep. Matt does not know everything. He may think it died with him, but this is a natural power. Just uh, stabbing a dude wouldn't kill a natural power. Hmm. Yeah, I. Um, but let me find I the don't actual. Remember quote. I've been looking for the actual yeah, quote. And I can't so. find it because I don't have my physical with me. I listened to an audiobook. We can't play that part of the audiobook for copyright reasons. <laughs> I do not have the audiobook. Oh, or the ebook on me. Alright. I would like to get to the, to the bottom of this right now. That'd be awesome. But yeah, um, the. We would not. We would not get a definitive yeah. answer. But I want to know what, what it specifically what it comes says down died. to, though, is that simply. Matt stabbing, Matt stabbing uh, Pat and Fane wouldn't destroy the power. The only thing we see in the series that can actually destroy chunks of the power of Shadar Logoth is, is the taint. The taint. Yeah. Um, but I thought I it died works. with him because he hadn't yet manifested anywhere into the ground. But you could your argument is that that act was him manifesting into the ground. Correct. Okay, it's interesting. It's interesting. I could have sworn it died with him. I could have sworn it specifically said it died with him, but judging the fact, judging on the fact that Matt has been an unreliable narrator, he, you're right. He does know everything, even if it specifically says that this could be interpreted as the taint, not the taint, Mashadar finally finding a seed. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, I, I don't. I don't think it's a coincidence that he dies at Shale Ghoul. Oh no. Yes. Yeah, that's saying that sound that's, that feels that's intentional. Stretching, that's stretching plausibility. Okay, so this is in uh, Fane's point of view, in Shai Sam's point no, of view. No, no, this is not how a meeting with old friends should go. Okay, so he gets stabbed with the dagger and then tied to this pitiful mortal mortal form. Mordeth screamed, Pat and Fane howled, and felt his flesh melting from his bones. The mists trembled, began to swirl and shake. Together they died. So it's Mordeth and Fane died, but it does not say anything I thought it was about... the mists and Fane, or mists and Mordeth slash Fane, together they died. Hey, it depends on how you interpret it, I guess. It, it leaves a lot, like again, like you said, it leaves yeah, it wiggle is, room. It is fairly ambiguous. Yeah. But, it's uh, probably intentionally written that way, too. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I like I said, though, I don't have an issue with the way Thane... Uh, so here's the, here's the big thing. The dagger is a touchstone for the power, right? Mm -hmm. The power of Shatter Logoth, not the power, the one yes. power. Yeah. The dagger melted into the mess that had been Pat and Thane. The dagger melted into the ground. 
the power permeates. Well, yeah, it didn't evaporate. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and yeah, no, there there's no um, quote from Matt in this about the power dying. Depending on how you interpret it, when it says together they died, is it talking about the power in Fane or Fane and Mordeth together? Because it's also specifically mentioning the mists. It it says the mists trembled, and then together Changing they the died. Subject. After talking about Fane and Mordeth. So like, yeah, it's all how and, and the semantics. Fact, how you the fact it. remains, even with even if the mist died like that, the power is in the dagger, and the dagger melts into yeah. the ground here. The dagger permeates yeah. into the ground. Because even a pebble, yeah, as they, Moraine says from Shadow Logoth, yeah. is enough. Yeah. Until a, until the like one, yeah, it's wiped like one out. One gets but... the impression that it's like a solid state kind of evil thing, where like yeah. one, I mean, they might be different to the eye in form, but as far as the content of evil in any piece, you know what is concerned, it's I might actually be able to bridge it's, these ideas it's here. All one hundred percent there. Mashadar seems yeah. a lot like a fungus, and that dagger may have been the last spore. Huh. But if that last spore found fertile ground, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a good argument to be made there. Um, but yeah, uh, what did you say? That was the last question. The that last was the last question? listener question. Yes. Okay. Because we need to have a few more seconds to get. To yeah, that. I know. Did we, thoroughly, uh, did we thoroughly answer that gentleman's question? Uh, hold on, I'm going back up to check the question itself. Oh, no, that's at the bottom of my list. What am I saying here? Uh, let's see here. Oh, I just wanted to talk about how infuriated I was by the ending of Pad and Fane, how that was handled. But that was all of Christian Hayden's question. Uh, to me, that was one of the greater mysteries of the books and one of the least understood. That's all he said. Okay. Okay, uh, Rob. So I think yes. this next segment is, uh, is you're the host of this. Aha! Uh-huh. I am the host <laughs> of the next segment. So ladies and gentlemen, we are... Coming now to a segment in which I will formally ask my co-hosts, Drew and Pat, and anybody listening who happens to be sharing a brew, to pour another full glass. That's the sound of me pouring some whiskey. Because I had the idea for this segment very recently, and what I want to do is to go over a complete list, or at least a... uh, Oh boy, the bare bones of a list of all of the casualties we had in A Memory of Light. Not just the last battle, but everybody who died who was notable in this book. And to share a drink or perhaps a sip separately in each of their honors. So, do we have our drinks ready, gentlemen? Okay. So, our first death for those who have their drinks prepared. We're going to take a sip for each. And I'll just say exactly how they died and who they were. Um, our first... And these are in no particular order, by the way. Jory Congar. Who bled to death pinned under a trollic. Rest in the light, Jory. Sit for you, my man. My dude. Alright. Karuna Nachiman, unable to defend herself against Grandal at Thakandar. A drink for Karuna. To Karuna. Queen Tenobia Kazadi, killed in a vain maneuver orchestrated by the shadow's corruption of the great captains. A drink for Queen Tenobia. Hmm. I'm glad she's dead. <laughs> I am too, but I don't I'm not glad in how she died. I would have preferred it to be her own stupidity rather than something legitimate. Alright. King Alsalam Almadar, slain in the battle off off screen in the Battle of Shale Ghoul. A drink for King Alsalam. <sighs> Woo! Whiskey and water in hindsight was not a good combination for this segment. Oh hell no. <laughs> what on earth? 
Oh, I have a good whiskey, though. I have a very good whiskey I'm going to talk about during the final draft. But, man, this is going to leave me a little uh, messed up for tomorrow. A drink for Trom on Galad's behalf because we know what a stubbornly sober prick he is. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, I want to say I also well, I want to give credit to somebody on DragonMount.com, <clears throat> an admin. Maybe just a moderator. Actually, I didn't see his... his, his uh, Credit credentials, but this was Baird Bell Madar, ironically, giving us this list on <laughs> dragonmount.com. <clears throat> and his phrasing, his or her phrasing, was just too perfect not to quote directly for this next one. Romanda Kassin killed doing what she does best, ignoring orders. <laughs> but, and this is my addition, she died in her fight against the shadow, so to her we drink. <sighs> Ruark, clan chief oh. of the Tardot Isle. Taken by Grandel's compulsion. Killed by Avienda. Oh. Big sip for you, my man. You were done. Cold by oh, Team Jordan. Ruark. From this dream, all men must wake. Oh, boys. This is rough. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're like gulping, too. Oh, so <laughs> <Well, laughs> I know. I'm having a sip, sips. and this is like three quarters water, but my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Particularly heartbreaking one for me. Huron. Killed at the end of the Battle of Merlor. Dying for Lord Rand. Oh. Rest in the light, Huron. And the last embrace of the mother welcomed him home. Alana Mosvani, who never had her chance to actively fight the Shadow as one of the Green Aja, instead dying in the Pit of Doom itself, terrified that she was dooming the Dragon Reborn with her mistakes. Yep. Boys, as much, as much complaining as we've done about Alana before this, that is not the way I'd have chosen for her to go. Right. Yeah. She needed so a sip, not death. <laughs> A sip for Alana. And now it gets harder. Dira and Davram Bashir killed in the Battle of Merilor as ordinary soldiers. A drink for them. Yeah. A double D. Mm. Swan Sanche, former Amarlin, fearless, fearless? fearless leader and trainer of Egwene Elvir, killed in an explosion protecting Matt as the Sharon forces assaulted his command tent. And as I mentioned earlier, it, it just occurred to me writing that down. I can't believe it never occurred to me. Very similar manner to the story she once told Matt about her own uncle. Rest in the light, Swan Sanche. Yes. Gawain Tracand, perhaps the most complained about character on our episodes, with the possible exception of Egwene, died of his wounds after attempting to kill Demon Dread physically. A drink to Gawain. Good effort, buddy, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. His heart the was there. Leaves. It wasn't in the right spot, but it was there. And you were on Brigitta. the wheels and ground into the ground. Birgitta Silverbow. Birgitta Trehelion, who died doing her duty and protecting Elaine from a surprise dark friend assault. She's, I mean, yes, she's technically alive again by the end of our story, but as a character, she died and she's finished. Well fought, Birgitta. Enjoy, Brigitte, Brigitte, enjoy your new life. Guidel is waiting. Drink for her. <clears throat> no, Down the hole there. <laughs> oh, come on, don't get me started on that again. Egwene Alvir. Sorry. Sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, Egwene Alvir, innkeeper's <laughs> daughter from the two the rivers. <laughs> Youngest Amrly Seat of all time. Last episode. <laughs> Killed in a suicidal but successful attack on Mazram Taim as well as the entire army of Sharon Channelers. 
probably, I don't want to admit this, but probably the most badass death in the series that I can think of. Rest in the light, Egwene. Cheers. A drink that I know half of our listeners are waiting for, grudgingly. A drink for Bella, who was the most overhyped character of all time until perhaps Sanderson's stick. We'll get to that oh, in the yeah. future. Yep. <laughs> An often. I think that speaks volumes. Yep, yep, that speaks everything. An often downplayed death, and one that bums me out in particular. I don't know why. The death of the nameless servant after the Battle of Marilor is won. Killed by Mogedian needing to take a disguise. Yep. Can you imagine this, gentlemen? Can you imagine walking the field of victory with green things sprouting in the valley and people drinking and singing with praise and fucking Mogedian corners you and slits your throat? <laughs> what a bummer, for real. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. No. Oh. That guy's going to come back as, like, some incredibly rich, fun-loving, partying so. guy, you know, who just gets to... There's a guy who's a girl. ...cakewalk through life. Well, Gideon needed a disguise. It was, it was a woman. It was a woman. Oh, a woman. Oh, yeah. well, same goes. Yeah, same goes. Yeah. And our last drink. I'm going to finish this whiskey off on the... Oh, no, I'm not going to finish it. One more sip. There's more left than I thought there was. Um, Another moment that I predicted correctly. No, I went on to my last note there. We already said that. Randolph Thor, who I understand isn't technically dead either. But to me, he gets the same treatment as Brigitta. Their life as that person is over, and they are leaving loved ones behind. If anyone in this series has earned the honor of a drink, obviously, it was Randolph Thor. I won't say rest in the light, since you aren't dead. But I will say rest. You have earned it. May the dragon finally alight so he can get some fucking sleep. <laughs> Randall Thor needs to sleep in. That's what he needs. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> need a nap after all, right. all that. And that is the end of what I consider to be the notable deaths. There are plenty more, but those are the notable ones that I wanted to bring up for today. Mm -hmm. Alright, that segment is over, and man, my stomach is uh, having a time. Alright. Well... Let's move into the final draft. Oh, okay. All right, let's do this. I'll bring up the uh, the bottle here, and I'll start us off. For today, I went for an Irish whiskey. I originally said I was going to be featuring um, something I had featured before, something that I reserved for special occasions. My God, I am slurring my words after that. Um, instead, though, I found another Irish whiskey, pretty close to it on the shelves, that had a name that made me go, you know what, this is better. For the ending of the Wheel of Time, this is better. When we're talking about the ending of the greatest fa like fantasy epic of our time, and I, I had originally planned to, uh, to have a whole, you know, <clears throat> speech about Jordan and how he's influenced my life, but I realized we've already done a lot of that in Knife of Dreams, the last book mm -hmm. he ever technically wrote. So I'm just going to tell you what I brought today. This is a Irish whiskey, uh, let's see, uh, Walsh whiskey, believe it or not. It does definitely has a very, very strong scotch kind of flavor to it. Uh, it says unique fatting, single pot still, and single malt Irish whiskey, triple distilled for extra smoothness. Aged in flame charred bourbon barrels, distilled entirely of barley and traditional Irish copper pots. This here is called Writer's Tears. Oh, oh I know that whiskey. Oh, oh I very figured. nice. 
I figured it was only appropriate for the end of the Wheel of Time. Because all of us, having been writers of whatever we want to write, have been inspired in one way or another by the man that was Robert Jordan and continue to be inspired going forward by the man that is Brandon Sanderson. So what we have here is Writer's Tears. And it was very, very smooth, very delicious. A very interesting scotch-like burp, if you want to call it that. <laughs> it lingers for a few hours. And that's what I was um, sipping on during our previous segment. One sip at a time mixed with a lot of water. Still wasn't quite enough. <laughs> I had to take a break there. But uh, all in all, I highly recommend that Irish whiskey. It's very nice. A little on the expensive side here in Canada. It's $50 for a 26er. So it's, it's, it's a decent chunk of change for a, for a it's whiskey. Worth but it for, uh, it's worth it for, for this episode. For the end of the Wheel of Time. Yes. So yeah, what are you guys so drinking? Of course. Um, I'm, I'm just drinking some, some Mike's Hard Lemonade Black Cherry. You know, it's, it's a drink that I've had for a while. It's bitter, it's sweet, it certainly gets the job done. I've had so many fond memories with it. I have some particularly not fond memories of Mike's hard. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Mike's way harder than I anticipated. Yeah. Mike was too hard for 17-year-old Rob. Let's put it that way. Well, you know, it's a comforting thing to revisit. So, there you have it. Yeah. Awesome. Don't be afraid so, not to get too fancy, listeners. Drew McCaffrey, you have yeah, been no, sitting on this one for a long time, my friend. You have been telling me again and again how excited you are to talk about this one. Let's hear it. What you got, Drew? So today, I am drinking a beer from Anchorage Brewing Company in Alaska. Again from Anchorage, okay. This is a blend of their insane barley wine. They they make what is quite possibly the best barley wine in the world. It's called a deal with the devil. Uh, they've released a few oh. variants of it. You know, they they have a, a double oaked version and a triple oaked version. These are like the the double oaked. I have a can of the double oaked to deal with the devil at home right now. One can. If I wanted to, which I do not want to. I could sell it on the secondary market for about $220. One can of beer. Like These fine, guys fine are spot. kings of the barley wine game. And they blended it with their also very highly rated Imperial Stout. And then aged it 18 months in Woodford Reserve double-oaked bourbon barrels. It is... Uh, I mean, this is an insane beer. Uh, it's 15.5% alcohol by volume. Oh my god! And you were sipping that when I was doing mine? My segment? Uh, no, uh, I was I was sipping a separate beer. I've been drinking this one okay. over the course of the episode. Um, okay. But it, I mean, this thing is just all kinds of, like, sweet, dark fruit, oak, bourbon... You got you got that like the expected barley wine flavor profile, you know the the kind of like toffee and raisiny sort of thing, and it finishes with that roasty stout. It is extraordinary. This beer is so freaking good. I'm I'm over the moon that I've gotten to drink this. But more importantly, the name. I thought you already said the beer name. is called. Hold on, isn't it called? 
endless ending. <laughs> oh my god. That's it. That wraps up our coverage of the Wheel of Time there, ladies and gentlemen. Drew McCaffrey has done it. He has given us a reason to just say, alright, we're done. We're done here. Endless endings. I could have sworn he said it was called Deal with the Devil. So it, it's a, a blend of a deal with the devil and their imperial stout. Got you. Okay, because I thought even in itself, deal with the devil was perfect for, you know, Rand's whole thing with the Dark One, even though technically that would have been covered in part two of Memory of Light instead of part three. What Rand but... did was be like, hey, you want to make a deal? And then as the Dark One reaches out his hand, he goes, say! <laughs> <laughs> Puts his hand over his hair, just like he did there. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if I'm ever going to top this beer. Uh, on, on the podcast, I'll do my best. I do have a really good one for next week. Uh, and, and so we'll what are we covering next week? Covering, uh, but if, if this is this is the end of our Wheel of Time coverage for now, we'll eventually do New Spring. We'll probably do River of Souls and, and A Fire Within the Ways at some point. Uh, but this is the end of our coverage of the main series. So just a, a moment of silence. Yeah. And you know what, gentlemen, this has I think been we have... episode 65. I believe it's 65, of, yes. Of the I'm Eating like Out Loud podcast. Next up, we are covering Shorefall by Robert Jackson Bennett, the sequel to Foundry Side, which we covered last year. You can check those episodes out. Uh, we did those just before uh, we started The Wheel of Time, actually. So we have a nice little bookend. Yeah, yeah going... it was episodes 25 and 26, right before yeah. 27, which started The Wheel of Time. A bookend with 4.2 million words in between. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, we also did Warrior of the Altai and Star Sight and some odds and ends in between. So, you know, uh, check us out on Patreon if you want early access to that. Uh, we will also be doing um, a Patreon-exclusive episode on A Fire Within the Waste, which is the deleted Perrin sequence from A Memory of Light. Uh, that should be... Um, That'll, that'll be up on Patreon by the time this episode is out. So if you want to get access to that, check us out there. As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me, co-host Rob Santos. Right here. And our special guest and sound engineer, Patrick <clears throat> McCaffrey. It's been an Thanks, honor. Thanks, Pat. It's been an honor having you, my man. Thank you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I know. But it's been... I appreciate you. Pat, I appreciate you so much. Drew... Feel, we're here like I, i'm saying this as if the podcast is going to end but it's not ending it's I mean, no but in so a large part like i said it at is, the very it is beginning an, it is an ending <laughs> the very beginning of our wheel of time coverage i said the wheel of time is the main reason that this podcast exists because Pretty i would never is. have met drew mccaffrey if it if it hadn't yeah. so in in a way it does feel appropriate it's it's an ending it does feel appropriate to make this a big final send-off looking at the timestamps, it looks like we have now officially broken our record again for the longest episode on inking out loud yet by a few minutes um, yeah i think so 33 episodes we spent talking about robert jordan's wheel of time 33 <laughs> not counting the warrior of the altai which is also robert jordan not counting the casting <laughs> episodes for the patrons so it's uh it's been one hell of a journey so thank you gentlemen for discussing this with me yeah. And thank you all for so, listening. Everybody who's listening, thank you so much. Seriously, thank you for joining us on this journey. Cheers. I'll have a drink yeah. to that. Yeah. It's, it's been a time, and uh hope you guys all stick around. We have 
plenty of fun fantasy and science fiction coming I up. I hope you like, like Brandon said, Sanderson. We're, <laughs> we're doing Shorefall next. We got The Black Company coming up. We got Mistborn. We got Stormlight. We got Doom. We got all kinds of great stuff on the uh, on the schedule for the rest of this year and into the future. So, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Deuces.